Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. My name is Andrew Wallace and I'm the director of the museum. Once again, I would very much like to thank everyone who has written in about the podcast, and I'll be passing those to my solicitor to deal with. We had one in from Mrs Trullis of North Wales, who, I fear, must have had her predictive text switched on while she was typing, as she said she thought the last episode was utter bollards. And so to business. Continuing on our virtual tour of the collection, we have reached the year 1899. Queen Victoria is nearing the end of her reign, and we have a war in South Africa. There had been unrest in that region since 1880, when the Boers in the Transvaal balked against British taxation, and skirmishes broke out when Boers attacked British strongholds to reclaim their impounded wagons after non-payment of taxes. This led to the Anglo-Boer War, which ranged across the Transvaal for a year. British troops were outnumbered and were unused to the terrain. The Boers, on the other hand, were trained hunters and well used to the landscape and to guerrilla warfare. The war ended after a resounding British defeat at Majuba, where 200 British soldiers were lost versus only two deaths from the Boer forces. An uneasy peace followed, which was eventually formalised when, in 1884, the London Convention was signed. The Transvaal was given a new western border and adopted the name of the South African Republic. Although the word sovereignty did not appear in the London Convention, the South African Republic still had to get permission from the British government for any treaty entered into with any other country other than the Orange Free State. The Boers saw this as a way for the British government to interfere in Transvaal affairs and this led to tension between Britain and the South African Republic. This increased steadily until the outbreak of the Second Anglo-Boer War in 1899. Tactics employed by the Boers of swift surprise attacks by commandos, groups of mounted men who would hit infantry units or supply trains or the blockhouses set up by the British. They would kill, loot and escape rapidly with very few losses. Eventually, Britain was forced to send out many more troops to avoid another drubbing by the Boers, and a guards brigade of four battalions was shipped south. They had their first battle at a place called Belmont, followed by an action at the Moda River, where the brigade was trapped under heavy fire in the intense African heat for 36 hours. To address the success of the Boer commandos, the guards formed two companies into what they called the Mounted Infantry, which at first seems a contradiction in terms. Until now, you were either infantry or you were cavalry. But in this conflict, the guards needed the ability to combat the commandos on equal terms. Therefore, they had to become mounted so as to meet and pursue their attackers. They became highly successful at beating off these attacks, but it took two years and they incurred heavy losses. Rather like in the Crimean campaign, Queen Victoria was acutely aware that her soldiers were fighting in her name and a very, very long way from home. We have in the collection one of the tins of chocolate which she sent to every British soldier fighting in South Africa to mark the new year of 1900. The box still contains the original chocolate. 
Another interesting fact is that the Scots Guards had a regimental pet at the time, a terrier called Bob, who went with them to Africa and who was awarded the same two medals as everybody else who deployed to Africa. He wore the two miniature medals on his dog collar, which we have on display in the museum. In my office, I also have a very fine print of two officers in the Scots Guards, one in guard order and one in frock coat order, which shows them just after their return from the South African War, and there beside them is Bob the dog. The Boers capitulated in May 1902 and the guards sailed home. So we find the new century starting with the formation of an Irish regiment of foot guards by command of Queen Victoria herself. Towards the end of her reign, Queen Victoria wanted to recognise the bravery of the Irish regiments in the South African War, and also to acknowledge the fact that at the turn of that century, a third of the British army was made up of Irishmen. So she commanded the Irish guards be formed. This was done by seeking volunteers from the three existing guards regiments who came from Irish backgrounds, and also from Irish regiments in the wider army. So it was that on the 1st of April 1900, Army Order 77 was issued, setting out the Queen's command. The first regimental lieutenant colonel was Colonel V.J. Dawson from the Coldstream Guards, and their first commanding officer was Lieutenant Colonel R.J. Cooper from the Grenadiers. Lord Roberts, the father of the British Army, kindly consented to become their first colonel of the regiment. Button spacing was obvious. As the 4th Regiment in the Brigade, their buttons would be grouped in fours, and they chose the Star of St. Patrick as their cap badge. Initially, they produced a green plume to be worn in the bearskin cap, until somebody pointed out that the Royal Irish Fusiliers already were using a green plume. So a new plume was designed taking the shade of blue used in the Order of the Star of St. Patrick. Now the Irish Guards are the only one of the regiments of foot guards to have an official mascot in the form of an Irish wolfhound. The hounds are all donated as pups by the Irish Wolfhound Society and they are all named after the great kings of Ireland. The first dog was named Brian Baru and wore an impressive solid silver dog collar which we have on display. The hounds are all looked after by a member of the regiment's corps of drums and the hound marches in front of the band, pipes and drums when on parade. He is very well cared for, and must be one of the most photographed wolfhounds in the world, a fact he treats with admirable indifference, underlined by the occasional yawn. We have a rather wonderful photograph of the mascot standing on its hind legs, with his paws on the shoulders of his drummer handler, looking him straight in the eye. They are indeed huge dogs. I suspect it's the Guinness that's responsible. In this part of the museum, we have two reminders of the first two colonels of the regiment. Lord Roberts was appointed their first colonel when they were formed in 1900, and he held that office until 1914, when he handed over to Lord Kitchener, who held the post until his death in 1916, when he drowned aboard HMS Hampshire. We have a life-size bronze bust of Lord Roberts, and we have an excellent silver statue of Lord Kitchener, which depicts him mounted on horseback. Lord Roberts was a close friend of Rudyard Kipling, and it was Kipling who twisted Lord Roberts' arm to allow his son John Kipling to join the Irish Guards, even though he was nearly blind with a serious case of myopia. 
Kipling had been put in charge of recruitment by the War Office, and he was obsessed with having his son serve the war effort in some way. His son had been refused by both the Royal Navy and the Army due to his poor eyesight. However, Rudyard Kipling prevailed on their many years of friendship and coerced Lord Roberts to make an exception by admitting his son. John, or Jack Kipling, as he was known, trained at Warley Barracks in Brentwood, Essex, and was commissioned into the Irish Guards, and was shipped to France immediately, where he was killed in action two days after his arrival. Kipling never forgave himself for pushing the point and effectively signing his own son's death warrant. He wrote the poem My Boy Jack about his son's death. And even in his palpable grief, his views on serving the country in war shine through. It goes like this. Have you any news of my boy Jack? Not this tide. When do you think that he will come back? Not with this wind blowing and this tide. Has anyone else had word of him? Not this tide. For what is sunk will hardly swim. Not with this wind blowing and this tide. Oh dear, what comfort can I find? None this tide, nor any tide, Except he did not shame his kind, Not even with that wind blowing and that tide. Then hold your head up all the more, This tide and every tide, Because he was the son you bore, And gave to that wind blowing and that tide. Whilst on the subject of the South African War, we have on display a pen and ink drawing of the Battle of Biddlesburg in 1900. The study shows the moment that Colonel Francis Lloyd of the Grenadier Guards was injured. They were fighting the Boers, who were well prepared and well dug in. Biddlesburg is a large, flat-topped, lozenge-shaped mountain where the northwest extremity is a knoll, all of which stands 250 metres above the plain. The southeastern brow of the mountain overlooks a long spur of varying width. It lay on the northern side of the Senecal Bethlehem Road, to the south of which is the flat-top Tafelkop. The British commander, determined not to enter a trap laid before him, turned his attack to the northern Biddlesburg. To cover this change in direction, one company of the Imperial Yeomanry was directed towards Tafelkop another to the south of Biddlesburg, the latter force being supported by three companies of infantry and two guns on Guadicop. Another three companies of Imperial Yeomanry were sent to the north-east of Biddlesburg to prevent any Boer reinforcements coming from Lindley. All this time the Boer riflemen on the slopes of the mountain and in the ditches made no sign. But at 11am, as soon as the grenadiers had advanced to within 1,100 metres of the mountain, their guns opened fire, and the Boers began to shoot from their protected positions. The grenadier guards were caught in the Boer enfilading fire from the ditches and were an easy target for the enemy riflemen from their positions at the bottom of the berg. They could therefore neither advance nor retire. The veldt by then was burning over a large expanse. At first, the grass on the plain afforded the soldiers some protection, but it soon caused a worse disaster. The wind blowing in the afternoon from the east changed direction and began blowing from the west, driving the grass fire towards the soldiers. 
the men were obliged to run through the flames, which rose 1.8 metres high. The Boer shooting increased and casualties began to mount. Many soldiers, not wounded, were badly singed, while the wounded, immobile on the ground, lay helpless and were burnt to death. Amidst the roar of rifle and artillery fire, the stretcher-bearers carried their loads of dead and dying through the dense clouds of smoke to the field dressing stations, far to the rear. Their work became so great that the fatal cases had to be left on the veldt and were ultimately brought away in the presence of Boers long after the troops retired. Meanwhile, the Scots guards drew some Boer fire and afforded their comrades brief respite before retiring. It was during this action that Francis Lloyd was shot in the buttock and fell to the ground. A young drummer boy, drummer Haynes, rushed to help him, but was immediately shot, in the buttock too. Suddenly, no one seemed that interested in helping, as they knew a sniper had a bead on that particular area, and they were none too keen in modern parlance, of having a second one ripped for them. Drummer Hames then tried to pull the colonel behind an anthill, but the colonel was struck again in the stomach and Haynes had his forearm shattered. As previously mentioned, the veldt had caught fire and the flames were advancing towards where Lloyd was laying. With the assistance of Drummer Haynes and Private Fruin, they were able to crawl away until they were picked up and taken to a dressing station. Francis Lloyd did recover and went on to become Major General commanding the Household Division and General Officer commanding the London District. We also have a very fine portrait of General Sir Francis Lloyd painted by the famous artist Philip de Laszlo. We have a photograph of him sitting at Wellington desks in Horse Guards signing the order that sent the newly formed Welsh Guards on their first ever King's Guard on St David's Day 1915. He was a popular officer and was known to most as Uncle Frankie, though not to his face. He was something of a martinet with exacting standards, but had wonderful powers of inspirational oratory. There is a very good book about his diaries and letters written during his time as General Officer Commanding London District, especially in World War I. The book is entitled The Man Who Ran London During the Great War, which is an impressive title, but it's actually true. He was given sweeping powers over hospitals, railway stations, power companies, and was solely responsible for the defence of the capital. I intend basing a whole episode on the book and the man, so I will leave it there for the time being. We have on display a rather beautiful silver spirit stove in a very fine leather case, which was used in the South African campaign by an officer called Lieutenant Colonel the Lord Herbert Scott. Initially, he was a grenadier officer, however, he transferred into the Irish Guards when they were formed. His grandson, Douglas Scott, donated the stove to the museum with the message that knowing his grandfather as he did, he probably used the stove to heat up his whiskey. Top man. On Tuesday, 22nd of January 1901, Superintendent Fraser ordered the household police to surround Queen Victoria's Isle of Wight residence, Osborne House. All telephone and telegraph wires were suspended, and any servant or messenger was prevented from leaving. A short while later, he walked down the long gravel drive to the entrance where a large crowd was waiting, and pinned a small notice on the bulletin board. Osborne House, 
January 22nd, 6.45pm. Her Majesty the Queen breathed her last at 6.30pm, surrounded by her children and grandchildren. And so the news of the Queen's passing was announced to the world. Her death stunned the nation. What followed was chaos and confusion. One of the disadvantages of living so long was that there was no one alive who could remember how to bury a monarch, and this queen had asked for a full military state funeral. Royal funerals were usually very private affairs, but Queen Victoria had other ideas. Interestingly, she decreed her body should not be embalmed, so they had to scatter charcoal on the floor of the coffin to combat the smell and to absorb body fluids. She tasked her dresser, Mrs Tuck, to place John Brown's mother's wedding ring on her finger and to place a photograph of her treasured personal servant, a lock of his hair and one of his handkerchiefs in the coffin with her, discreetly hidden from view. Guardsmen from the Grenadiers were sent over to the Isle of Wight to stand sentry over her catafalque until the journey to London could be arranged. Her body was brought across the Solent in the small royal yacht, the Alberta, and thence from Portsmouth to London by train. In London there was something of a standoff occurring between the Earl Marshal and the Lord Chamberlain as to who had responsibility for the funeral arrangements. Eventually, Sir Frederick Punsonby, the late Queen's private secretary, asked Lord Roberts, the newly appointed commander-in-chief of the army, to take over the arrangements for the procession. Lord Roberts arranged for 33,000 troops to be sent to London from across the empire to take part in this farewell to the longest-serving monarch in history. The Guards' regiments played a major part in the proceedings, especially the bands. The Grenadiers, as a senior regiment of foot guards, provided the bearer party. It was a massive logistical task to billet all those extra soldiers in London and to feed them. However, with considerable effort, it was achieved. The funeral was the largest procession since the funeral of Wellington some years before, and there is some very interesting Pathé News film footage on the internet, which is well worth watching. Although not a guards-related tale, it is worth noting how a near disaster paved the way for a new royal tradition. There came the final train journey to Windsor, where the procession waited as the coffin was placed on the gun carriage. More complications followed when the horses, having stood motionless in the freezing weather, suddenly kicked and broke away from their traces, almost toppling the coffin to the ground. The front of the procession had already marched off, and reached the end of Windsor Street before it could be stopped and turned around. The Royal Horse Artillery were unable to re-harness the horses, and disaster loomed. Prince Louis Battenberg, grandfather of Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, rescued the day, suggesting, If it is impossible to mend the traces, you can always get the Naval Guard of Honour to drag the gun carriage. Accordingly, 138 blue jackets piled their rifles, attached ropes to the carriage where the harnesses had been, and dragged the gun carriage to St George's Chapel by hand, giving birth to a new royal tradition. Queen Victoria's son, Edward, or Prinny as he was known, ascended the throne, and there followed an opulent era in terms of military dress, 
which reached its pinnacle at the time of his death in 1910. As you will have seen from period dramas on television, style was everything in Edwardian times, and there was a strict code as to what should be worn during the day and the evening. His reign was a decade of glittering pageantry, state occasions, and impressive balls, reviews, and parades. This was the era when the ceremony of Trooping the Colour was to become the highlight of the official social calendar, and it remains so to this day. Now, from time to time, wonderful things happen in the museum, and this tale is about two such events. When David Horne was curator, he received a phone call one day from the family of a former Grenadier guard, and they said they wished to donate some of his effects to the museum. David said that will be fine, ask no more, but arrange for a date for them to attend the museum to deal with the handover. Comes the day, and the family arrived. What they brought with them was truly remarkable. In several huge trunks, they had the most wonderfully complete set of a soldier's equipment. The soldier in question was Regimental Sergeant Major Augustus Thomas, DCM. The collection comprised of his scarlet tunic and number one dress trousers, his medals, his sword and sword belt, his bearskin and curb chain and the bearskin tin which housed it, his pastick and white gloves, his boots and forage cap complete with badges. They even had his rifle and bayonet. How in God's name they got hold of that is a tale for another time. They also produce a painting of Gus Thomas wearing the gold gun. Now the gold gun is pretty much exactly that. It's a solid 18 carat gold effigy of a rifle, about 6 inches in length and it is the prize awarded to the best shot in the Grenadier Guards at their annual musketry competition. The gun was made by the jewellers Hunt and Roskill, and was presented by Lieutenant Colonel the Honourable J. Lindsay in 1856 to be presented to the champion shot in the 1st Battalion Grenadier Guards. It is still shot for today, although the winner only gets to hold it briefly before it is whisked back to the safekeeping of the museum. Gus Thomas, as his uniform shows, was an outstanding marksman, and he carries two crossed rifle badges on the left forearm of his tunic to confirm that fact. He wears the gold gun pinned to the ribbons of his medals. He was an impressive character, and obviously a dyed-in-the-wool grenadier. However, there is a further twist in this story, insofar as David was bragging to a chum of his about this spectacular donation he had received into the collection when his friend said, well, I have something else which I think you might quite like. It turned out that RSM Gus Thomas was the illegitimate son of the Surgeon Major of the Grenadiers, one Major George Bailinghall Stewart. He was appointed in 1886 and remained in post until 1891. David's friend, owned the complete set of his uniform, 21 pieces of a surgeon's full-dress uniform. Thanks to a kind donation from British Aerospace, David was able to buy the collection of his chum, and it is displayed to this day next to Gus Thomas's equipment. Gus Thomas was something of a legend in his regiment. It was recorded that when he was in Africa in the Boer War, he was shot in the foot. He calmly dug the bullet out of his foot with his bayonet, 
replaced his boot and carried on fighting. He was in the bearer party for the funeral of Her Majesty Queen Victoria and was awarded the Royal Victorian Silver Medal. He was the conducting warrant officer for the funeral of His Royal Highness the Duke of Cambridge and to mark the outstanding job he did on that occasion, His Royal Highness the Duke of Connaught presented him with the gold top parade cane which is also on display. Speaking of the Duke of Connaught, we have the frock coat of Field Marshal His Royal Highness Prince Arthur Duke of Connaught, who was the seventh child and third son of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. He served for an incredible 74 years in uniform, and he was the 21st Colonel of the Grenadier Guards. He was a diminutive man, almost bird-like in stature, but was fiercely smart with a clipped moustache and a monocle. On the shoulder boards of his frock coat, he carries the ciphers of the five sovereigns he served during his time in uniform. Queen Victoria, Edward VII, George V, Edward VIII and George VI. Quite an achievement by any standard. The museum is also fortunate enough to have another wonderful painting of a warrant officer. This time it is of RQMS or Regimental Quartermaster Sergeant George Sutton of the 3rd Battalion of the Grenadier Guards. This is quite a small study, measuring only 12 inches by 8 inches, and it is very finely worked. What is interesting is that he is shown wearing the 4-bar chevron, denoting that he was a Sergeant Major. That badge is no longer worn in the British Army, except by the Garrison Sergeant Major, London District. And there's a story behind that too, which we'll cover in a future episode. So now we come to the establishing of the last of the five regiments of foot guards, the Welsh Guards. The year is 1915 and we are at war. The King, who had formerly been Prince of Wales, decreed that he wanted a Welsh regiment of foot guards formed. Their buttons would be grouped in fives and their badge would be the national emblem of Wales, the leek. For their bearskin plume, it was decided they would have a white, green and white plume, being the colours of the House of Tudor, the dynastic family of Wales. We have on display the first mace or staff used by the drum major in the Welsh Guards, and it is a monster. It was presented by Lady Tredegar, and it is a textbook case of style over practicability, in that the head of the mace is crafted in Welsh silver and carries eight shields around the underside of the head depicting the eight kings of the ancient kingdom of Wales and the whole is surmounted by a snarling dragon coiled around the crown. This huge confection of silver made the head of the mace top-heavy and a nightmare to use on parade. It was quite soon offered up as an exhibit for the museum. Well, that's about it for this week. If you were awake and listening carefully, you will indeed have found references to bearskins, bayonets and bravery this week, so I hope we are staying true to our title. I very much hope you've enjoyed this episode, hearing about the formation of the two junior regiments and learning a little more about the artefacts we have on display covering the period from 1898 through to the Great War. Do let me know what you think about the podcast by sending me an email. 
to garsmuseum, all one word, at aol.com. And if you wish to support us through the pandemic lockdown, you might wish to consider making a donation. This can be done by going to our website at www.theguardsmuseum.com and looking for the Support Us button. As we are approaching the season when guards aficionados will be excitedly waiting for Trooping the Colour, it is no doubt a great sadness to many that the usual ceremony, which we all love to watch, is cancelled. So I have decided to make the next episode a special one. I will be interviewing Garrison Sergeant Major Andrew Stokes about his involvement in the preparation for and the delivery of this most famous ceremony and how the Sovereign's official birthday will be covered this year. So that's me done. I have been Andrew Wallace. This has been episode 10 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Gars Museum. So until next time, goodbye and God bless. Now, turn to your right and salute. Dismiss! Up! Down! And get away! Thank you.